According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We have arrived at Isaiah chapter 62 this morning. Isaiah 62, continuing on in our one chapter per Sunday roller coaster, that is the book of Isaiah. I can't tell you how many times, well, 62 times now, I've wanted to stop and slow down and spend a month or longer on a verse or a chapter or a doctrine, and yet that's not the format for this hour. The in-depth, the depths of Scripture comes at the 9.30 hour or the midweek service. I believe the length and breadth and height and depth dimensions that are spoken of in Ephesians are powerful for us to understand the different approaches to the Word of God. And so this hour, the approach is more of the big picture, the height of Scripture, if you will, or the breadth of Scripture. And so we're working our way through. When we wrap it up, we're just four weeks away now from the end of the book, (coughs) 66 chapters. And so we're nearly there. We're going to follow it up with 52 Sundays in the book of Jeremiah. And so we're handling Isaiah and Jeremiah as a uh, a back-to-back tandem. And I think it's going to be useful for us. I'm convicted that our nation needs believers that are strong in the truth of the Word of God in particular that uh, have the application to be made uh, from both the Isaiah and Jeremiah perspective. And if uh, indeed dark days are coming for our land, then the weeping prophet may become our best friend in uh, digesting the doctrine. Uh, of uh, that that prophet has to communicate. In any event, that's still uh, four weeks away. Let's uh, get a look at Isaiah 62. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not keep quiet until her righteousness goes forth like brightness and her salvation like a torch that is burning. This is a powerful message. It's one that he cannot be silenced about. There's no shutting him up when it comes to Isaiah talking about the glories of the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. The nations will see your righteousness and all kings your glory, and you will be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will designate. All right, so this is what we have to look at here today. Only 12 verses to cover. I think we can handle that. 12 verses in, uh, in the hour that God has blessed us with. I know, you're laughing. All right, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Let's get started before the throne of grace, asking the Father to bless our time and under his truth, shall we pray. Almighty Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing that we have to assemble together. The powerful message of Isaiah, Father, which communicates uh, really the whole Bible in one book. I pray that we would be attentive to the message this morning. As uh, Isaiah can't help himself, he has to utter these things. We, uh, we want to be like that, Father. We, can't, uh, we don't want to help ourselves. We have to listen to these things. We have to learn from them. We have to uh, apply them. We have to live them on a day-by-day basis. Father, your word will not return void. That includes this hour, this moment. Father, minister your word to your children, and might we go forth and live this truth in our day of application. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we have the blessings upon Israel and Jerusalem. The millennial blessings upon Israel and Jerusalem will include new names as a testimony to the Gentile nations. Remember, Israel from the very beginning was called to be a covenant people. 
They were called to be a kingdom of priests. They were called to be separate from the Gentile nations, and they were supposed to be ministering to those Gentile nations. Sadly, if you're familiar at all with the Old Testament, you realize that Israel very seldom did what they were supposed to do. And even from the very beginning, even from Mount Sinai, in some respects, they rejected the original plan. Rather than being a nation of priests, they requested that Moses go back on that mountain by himself and that he come back and tell them what the Lord had to say. They requested a mediator on their behalf when they themselves were supposed to be the mediators to the Gentiles. And so they walked away from Sinai with a Levitical priesthood. They walked away with a priesthood for themselves, even though they were called to be a kingdom of priests to the Gentile nations around them. And so these are some of the issues that we want to identify as we look forward to the Millennial Kingdom. Because as we saw last week, and as we've seen several times really, uh, this future is still in front of them. God desires them to be a kingdom of priests. And they will minister to the Gentiles during the Millennial Reign. And the new names are going to be a part of that. They receive new names, and those names are testimonies. Those names carry doctrine with them. And we're to learn what these doctrines are about in the names that the Lord gives them. And so the first five verses, I think, speak to this. Uh, We've read two of those verses already about, for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And uh, uh, the verse two, the nations or the Gentiles will see your righteousness and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name which the mouth of the Lord will designate. You will also be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. God himself is going to celebrate the glories of Israel and what he made them to be in spite of themselves, in spite of their rebellions, in spite of their adulteries, in spite of all of their Old Testament failures. It will no longer be said to you, forsaken, That's an old name, all right? That's an old reputation. They're going to have a new name and a new reputation. Nor to your land will it any longer be said desolate, but you will be called Hephzibah. My delight is in her. And that's unfortunate that they translated that. I would rather they keep these as the proper names. Um, And your land will be called Beulah. Your land married. Now, I don't know if you're not reading, if you're reading an old King James, maybe you have the Hephzibah and the Beulah terminology that's there. I'm disappointed, actually, that the uh, New American Standard uh, translated those rather than transliterated them. For the Lord delights in you, and to him your land will be married. For as the young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. And let me tell you, we could stop right there and spend six months (laughs) detailing all the doctrine that's to be found in here, the significance of every single name, the impact of Beulah for the Jewish people, the uh, nature of these things. All I can do this morning is give you some highlights, give you some direction to take, and... uh, promise that someday, Lord willing, we'll get back to this and, and really unfold it in, uh, in a glorious kind of way. But understand, first of all, the Gomer front doctrine from Hosea is giving way now to Hephzibah and Beulah doctrine from Isaiah. There's a place for this in the whole body of prophetic literature that is the Hebrew canon. And if you ever study the book of Hosea, Hosea is not a happy book. 
Hosea is about a prophet who was forced to marry a faithless harlot. Her name was Gomer. All right? And if you've never studied the book or you don't know who Gomer is, I recommend you, you uh, get some background on that and study this out. All right? Gomer, the faithless harlot. I've had a couple of computers over the years I've named Gomer just because of uh, the faithless harlot that's let me down in different things. All right? But understand the principle there because all of that was a pattern. And the personal marriage that Hosea had to suffer through and endure was to paint the picture of what Yahweh was enduring when his nation was faithless against him. All right? Because Gomer played the harlot under Hosea's roof in his, in their marriage. She had children and he had no way to know if they were his because she was a harlot. And yet he took those children. He gave names to those children. There's a lot of doctrine in the book of Hosea. And Hosea, by the way, was the last of the prophets to the northern kingdom before they were swept away in their unbelief. So there's a lot of doctrine to be found there. And a pattern and principles that are applicable in our day and age, applicable to any nation that's going to be faithless to the Word of God, faithless to the standards of divine uh, viewpoint within uh, our politics or within our governmental operations. A lot of doctrine there. Well, now it's giving way to Hephzibah and Beulah. Now it's giving way to the blessings of restoration, of uh, my delight is in her. Hard to take delight in a faithless, adulterous wife, a treacherous wife. But he takes delight in her because he has restored her. He, she is now at a point where she is faithful. Israel is now at the point, not when they're crucifying their king, but when they are accepting their king. They are calling upon the Christ whom they crucified, and he is coming to deliver them into the millennial kingdom. And whereas in his first advent they rejected him, they crucified him, the Jewish people operated in unbelief and rejected their Messiah, at second advent they will in faith call upon their Messiah, knowing that he is the Christ whom they crucified. They will look upon him whom they pierced, and they will call out to the God of their salvation. And he will restore them. He even uses the virgin language here for a woman that's clearly not a virgin. And yet he restores this in, in a miraculous way that only God can do. And so now we have the blessings of Beulah. And it's kind of interesting. We should have sang Beulah Land this morning. I, I failed to uh, make those arrangements ahead of time. But it's amazing how many of our hymns, how many songs, gospel quartets, and other groups sing about Beulah in a, in a word that only shows up here. <laughs> the only verse of the Old Testament that addresses Beulah is this verse we're looking at here this morning. Now, as you study these doctrines, uh, don't uh, lose the distinctions, all right? Don't confuse your weddings. Don't confuse your marriages. Don't confuse the imagery that is found in both the Old Testament and the New Testament alike. Because both Testaments use marriage uh, imagery. They use the metaphor of, of marriage to make their point. In the New Testament, it's Christ and the church. In the Old Testament, it's Yahweh and Israel, all right? And too much damage gets done when theologians come along or pastors or believers or whoever and they just see the similarities in the language in the in the wedding language and they say oh this is a wedding oh that's a wedding and they just say it's got to be all the same thing and they actually misapply these principles to try to identify Israel and the church rather than distinguishing between Israel and the church and to me the distinctions couldn't be more um, severe in the sense that we are a promised 
bride, not yet married. All right? We are espoused. We are promised. And yet, our groom has not yet come for us. He has not yet come to take us out of our house and take us to his house. Okay? That's the imagery on the, on the wedding ceremony. Okay? The groom goes to the bride's house, the bride's father's house. All right? And he is going to fetch her from that house and bring her to his house. That's the rapture of the church, folks. We haven't gotten there yet. <laughs> All right? We're still promised. We're still promised. Now, it's binding, of course. An engagement is binding. There's no breaking it. Remember, Mary was engaged to Joseph and the Virgin Mary, and then she's found to be with a child. Remember what Joseph was, was terrified about? <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm legally bound to my fiance here, and it's considered married, but we're still in the engagement. And now she's pregnant. And so, obviously, what any human male would think, uh, he's got he's to divorce her. He's got to send her away until the angel shows up and says, no, no, all right? She's still a virgin, the only pregnant virgin in the history of the world. And uh, by faith, Joseph responded and lived the doctrine and had the great victory there. In any event, Christ and the church, that's the imagery of us being espoused. And while we are espoused, we are described in this way, in the language of virginity, purity, the language we've taught the doctrines in, in Corinthians when Paul was talking about his, his jealousy for, for Corinth as a father protecting his virgin daughter and concerned that they will be led astray by the, the, uh, the, the adversary, by Satan and his deceptions in, uh, in, in uh, that passage there. All right? Now, contrast that with Israel. All right. Israel is never described in the fiancé language, never described in the espoused language, always described in the wife language, already in that marriage relationship and already faithless to her vows, already under the, the bond of that covenant and yet playing the harlot every chance she can get. In some of the most blunt language you'll ever find in the, in the scriptures, she, is, uh, she has a lover on every hilltop. She has, she's, she's doing that under every tree, every high place. And so uh, between Yahweh and Israel, we have the adulterous harlot wife who is divorced. We see the certificate of divorce that he issues against, Yah- against Israel. And we understand in the metaphor, we understand the application there when he sends Israel into captivity, when he sends her away. Presently, that's the circumstance today, a partial hardening upon Israel. She is, she's been expelled from her land since Nebuchadnezzar. We're waiting for the second advent for him to put her back in, in the land on a faith basis. So it really, it, it, to me and to, to many that, you, that employ the literal hermeneutic, you view these different marriage metaphors and say this can't be the same doctrine. This can't be the same application. We have a virgin that's espoused and not yet consummated with Christ in the church. And then we have the, 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 in, the marriage already in place that is consummated, that's now faithless in, the, in the, the harlotry of that faithless wife. No wonder he divorced her. All right? But then he brings her back and he restores her, even as Hosea was commanded to bring Gomer back. See? And so who, was, uh, who had the greater faith there, Hosea or Joseph? <laughs> you know, I wonder sometimes. 
both great, great believers of faith, all right? Uh, for Hosea, it was taking Gomer back and living that out. And uh, for Joseph, the young man was trusting by faith that, that she was a virgin and, and the child he was going to raise as an adoptive stepfather was the Messiah, the Son of God in the flesh. And, uh, you know, I mean, parenting is an awesome responsibility all by itself, let alone bringing up the humanity of, of our Savior. See, okay? Anyway, uh, that's, that's a 10-minute rundown on what takes hours and hours and hours of work to do. Um, <coughs> but don't be surprised if you encounter folks uh, that have written commentaries or that are preaching in a sermon or whatever, and they start blending because of the marriage language of, of Yahweh and Israel or Christ and the church, they start blending those issues together and I think really confusing too many things in that regard. Israel is not the church. The church is not Israel, as we've studied in so many different, uh, so many different ways. All right, now this gets us then into, so what? <laughs> All right, yes, there is a future restoration coming. That's great. Everything seems pretty happy by the end of verse 5. And so what do we do about it? What's our application? What's expected of us? Do we just goof off and, and kind of, you know, just not do anything while we're waiting for God to do what he said he was going to do? Or do we become active participants in this? Do we become eager in our anticipation? What is our role? Waiting for the plan of God to unfold. Well, on your walls, O Jerusalem, I have appointed watchmen. All day and all night they will never keep silent. And that's, that brings in the same language from verse 1. Isaiah was going to keep silent with his ministry responsibilities of proclaiming this prophecy. Well, all of Israel now should not keep silent as they get in their armor and get on the wall and get busy in their corporate prayer meetings, as they get busy in their national prayer life. So on your walls, O Jerusalem, I have appointed watchmen. All day and night they will never keep silent. You who remind the Lord, this is kind of a neat you who passage. You who remind the Lord, take no rest for yourselves and give him no rest until he establishes and makes Jerusalem a praise on the earth. All right, so verses one through five talk about what Yahweh is going to do, what Jesus Christ will accomplish when he comes at second advent, what God will do for the Jewish people. And so what is Israel expected to do in the meantime? They're supposed to be fellow partakers in this by means of prayer. They're to be engaged in prayer. They're to be incessant in their prayers, never stopping, never shutting up. You who remind the Lord, are you tasked with giving reminders? Maybe you have a forgetful spouse. And so, thankfully, uh, you're, you're tasked with uh, reminding or you have, a faith, you have a forgetful pastor <laughs> and you're tasked with reminding. Or, I can illustrate this all day. But what if the person you're tasked to remind never forgets anything? I mean, God's omniscient, right? Okay. Reminding somebody of something that they have not forgotten. What's the point in that? 
because it actually expands his good pleasure and his glory. He wants you to remind him. He wants you to ask for what he's already promised to give. He knows what you need before you even ask. Why do you go to him in prayer and ask for it? Because it delights him when his children ask for it. It delights him when his children understand his will, understand his plan, understand his program, and agree with his will and his plan and his program. When human beings go to the Father in prayer, instead of turning to that counterfeit father, instead of engaging in the world system, instead of going to your father, the devil, you know, there's Satan's out there acting like a counterfeit father. Telling you all kinds of lies. Making all kinds of promises. In, in, in all these things, saying, oh, come on, it'll be fun. You'll like it. It won't hurt you anything. There's no price to pay. There's a huge price to pay. When you deny your heavenly father and you turn to that fraud as a substitute. And I love the fact that every time I go to my heavenly father in prayer, he knows what I need before I even ask. But every time I ask my father, it's a thumb in the eye to that fraud. I'm telling that father, I want nothing to do with you. You're not providing for me. I wouldn't want it. No, thank you. I have a father that provides and I know where to go. And so I love this language. On your walls, O Jerusalem. And this speaks of conflict. I think as we look at verses 6 through 9 here, I find a powerful admonishment to know my prophecy, that's eschatology, and to be busy in my daily prayer life waiting for that trumpet to sound. Accurate eschatology motivates fervent, effectual prayer. An accurate eschatology motivates fervent, effectual prayer. And you, and you just can't shut up about it. You just can't. You, you're going to talk about it every day, every farewell, every departure, every so long as a here, there, or in the air. Every, every goodbye is not just see you on Wednesday, but it's, well, or sooner. All right? Because that trumpet could sound before I even get home this afternoon. Accurate eschatology motivates fervent, effectual prayer. For you and I in the church age, it's vital. For Israel, it's vital. If Israel is all confused in their eschatology, they're going to start making bargains with a liar. This, this slick guy is going to come along and promise them peace, and they're going, to, they're going to go for it. They'll even have a false prophet that will tell them to go for it. All right? That's what, and with an inaccurate eschatology, Israel plunges into the Great Tribulation. But those who know better, those who know better get busy on the wall. They get armored up and they get positioned on the wall. See? It's a neat passage because of the, the combat imagery and the warfare uh, motif, which I enjoy. You know, uh, it's like Ephesians 6. You've got the armor of God where we're, you know, we're suited up, we're, we're ready for battle. And, uh, you know, would, would you rather be just out there on the open field surrounded by enemies? Or would you rather be, if you are armored up, would you rather be up there on the wall? Defensive positions, uh, you're a lot stronger up there on that wall. And you also have uh, fellow soldiers, fellow watchmen, and you see them coming. You got all the advantages of what God provides. That is, of course, if you're on the alert, if you're on the wall. How many soldiers are supposed to be on the wall and they're not? They're down there in the courtyard. They're smoking and joking, whatever they're doing, right? They're not, they're not, I mean, I know what soldiers do when they're off guard duty, okay? Anyway, this, this passage speaks to me in so many ways because uh, it's day and night. You ever do guard duty? 
as an MP in the army, let me tell you, I've done guard duty. <laughs> and then in the sheriff's department, I've done guard duty. Well, the point is, on guard duty, you have to stay awake. On guard duty, you can't fall asleep. Worst thing in the world is being asleep on duty. In combat operations, you can face a firing squad for being asleep on guard duty. Well, let me tell you, we're in combat operations here in the church age, and we don't want to be asleep on duty. We want to be on the alert. We want to be on the walls. Now, in the church age, we've got a different wall than what Israel had, but the principle is still the same. We're waiting for the rapture of the church. They're waiting for the second advent of Jesus Christ. There's differences, but there's similarities as well. See, watchmen on the walls. This illustrates readiness. It illustrates readiness. It illustrates eagerness. Being on the alert. Our Lord taught this again and again and again in His parables. From Matthew 16 to Matthew 24 to Matthew 25. It is a readiness that if we understand it in the context of Isaiah and we see it in the application for Israel at Second Advent, then we don't get stupid and misapplied in the church. Watchmen on the walls illustrates readiness. We want to understand the principle of readiness, but make our own application in the church age. Ready to give the gospel. My feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Ready to give an account for the hope that is in me. Ready to preach, pray, or die at a moment's notice, right? Ready to, to go where he sends me. There's a lot of readiness. Ready to be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. That's our readiness. But other readiness, the Bible talks about like the readiness of Israel for their Christ to return when Jerusalem was surrounded by armies. I'm not commanded to fulfill that readiness. That's not my application or yours. The church has no part in that. That's Israel in the tribulation, ready for the second advent. Or how about the readiness, uh, you might use this, I've used this, uh, the readiness to uh, march around Jericho seven times, uh, blow a trumpet, give a shout, and then be ready so that when the walls fall down, I can storm in there and kill everybody. That's a readiness application. (laughs) But I don't think anyone today would be ludicrous to think that that applied to them. Right? Am I ready to put animals on an ark two by two? There's a readiness application. The the Bible has a lot of readiness applications in many different time settings and, and contexts. And eschatologically, we don't want to misapply any of these things. So the readiness um, that Jesus is speaking of here comes out of Isaiah. We understand it related to Israel, to the Jewish people. It has a second advent fulfillment. It is not, does not pertain to the church. Matthew 16. The Pharisees and Sadducees came up and testing Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. We want to see a sign. And you know what a bunch of liars these, these guys are? How many signs have they seen prior to Matthew 16? They've seen all kinds of signs. And yet they're never satisfied. You know, if he shows them one more, they're going to say, well, show us another one. He can show you know, every time it's not good enough for him. But he replied to them, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning there will be a storm today for the sky is red and threatening. You've got this secular ditty, right? Red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky in morning, sailors take warning. Something like that. I wasn't in the Navy, but we've got this expression. We've got these idioms. 
Why, you know, what, you know, you, you hold to that kind of stuff. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky but cannot discern the signs of the times? There are people that dedicate their lives to discerning financial patterns and currency manipulations and investments and all kinds of uh, taxation policies. And they, they spend their lives studying trends so they can be ahead of the next one. So they can win on the next bubble and not lose. Okay? And they dedicate themselves to all the secular, temporal, all the indicators, all the clues, so they can just be, you know, a month out, a week out, whatever out, you know, a year out, whatever they're doing. You know how to discern temporal, secular stuff. Why are you not mindful of the signs of the times, he calls it here? Are you looking around at world events, current events, and do you see anything that reminds you of anything else? Do you, have a, do you have a frame of reference that says we're in the intensified stage of the angelic conflict? And right now uh, Israel is hated by virtually every na- uh, nation on the planet. They've got one friend left. I'm starting to wonder about us. Okay. I don't at all wonder about our government right now. Very hostile. But if the attitude of the people starts to match the attitude of, of the... Uh, if we choose the Muslim Brotherhood over the Jewish people, we're doomed. And then Israel has no friends left in the world. Does that get your attention? Because Scripture describes a time like that. Scripture time, uh, describes a time that they have no friends whatsoever, and so they reach out to the liar that promises them the, the, uh, the peace, that they, the, they'll, they'll swallow it hook, line, and sinker. In any event, do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky but cannot discern the signs of the times? An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and a sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah. The only, the only sign you're going to get is when I rise from the dead on the third day. And if you have any kind of divine viewpoint, if you're saved, if you have any frame of reference for Scripture, you're going to see uh, Jonah in the, in the whale for three days and you're going to see Jesus in the grave for three days and you're going to put two and two together and you're going to, you're going to know something. Anyway, there's a principle there. And how many people are alert in temporal life have no clue in spiritual life, completely maladjusted on their eschatology? Matthew 24, verses 42 through 51. And this is the Mount Olivet Discourse. Yet too many people try to shove the church into this chapter. And it's not here. This is a chapter that's for Israel. This is a message that's for the Jews in the tribulation. This is the follow-up to Isaiah, to Jeremiah, to Zechariah, to Daniel, to Ezekiel. This is Jesus Christ operating as an Old Testament prophet and correlating these things together. I'm tempted to read the whole chapter, but I can't do that. I've got no time for that. But in verse 42, Therefore be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Now that's second advent, not rapture. We want to be clear. Be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. Burglars don't send you an email to say, by the way, I'll be smashing your back window at 2.44 a.m. Okay? Be nice if they did, because you know, I'd be locked and loaded and sitting there waiting. And that's the point of this whole chapter. God has given us the urgency of what he is doing so that we are on the alert. 
In Isaiah, he says, get up on that wall and be on the alert. Take no rest for yourselves. Give him no rest. Be on the alert. If you get lazy, you think, well, it's a long time away. You wicked, lazy slave. Okay? You get to chapter 25. The first 13 verses there, it's a parable of ten virgins. There's five that are prudent and five that are not. And by the time the five that are not prudent are exposed for their laziness and their imprudence, it's too late. They've missed out because they were not on the alert. They should have been aware. They've got no excuse. The other five knew what what the deal was about. Those virgins that arose and trimmed their lamps. So the foolish said to the prudent, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. In an interesting, the, the people that are disobedient to the Scripture want those that are obedient to the Scripture to bail them out and spare them of their consequences for disobeying the Scriptures. Isn't that just typical? <laughs> All right, Watchmen on the Walls illustrates readiness. Taking no rest and giving no rest illustrate importunate prayer. You've heard that expression before? Importunate Prayer it means without ceasing. It means never stopping. It means sanctified nagging of the one who told you to nag him nonstop. You know, sometimes if a child does this to a parent, the parent gets irritated. Right? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Yeah, it's the same answer from 30 seconds ago. We're 10 seconds closer than we were the last time I answered that question. And at a certain point, right, human parents reach their finite capacity for long-suffering. God never does. All right? And so, and Jesus taught this. But I love the language in Isaiah 62. All day and all night they will never keep silent. You don't reach a point where you stop and say, well, I'm, I'm content, that's enough. I prayed all night, well, I'm, I'm done. If you're not going to answer, you're not going to answer, forget it, I'm done praying. Prayer doesn't work, I prayed all night. Well, it says day and night. So I'll pray the next day, keep praying. Don't stop until you get the answer. Until the manifestation of your co-labors with the Father is complete. So uh, all day, all night, they will never keep silent. You know, when did, when did Jacob let go of the angel? And he said, well, let go of me. He said, I'm not letting go of you. It's another illustration of what this is about. He was wrestling in, 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 the, in the, you talk about a metaphor, it was a real wrestling match with the real angel of the Lord. All night long. You who remind the Lord, I love that, because he never forgets. He never forgets. His omniscience doesn't let him forget. But he also chooses not to think about certain things. For example, our sin, he chooses to never remember ever again. It's behind his back in the depths of the sea and all that. But to remind somebody, in other words, to bring it back to the forefront of their thinking. To put it back in the, in the foreground. To put it back right before their eyes. To remind you who remind the Lord. What are you doing in your prayer life? Are you reminding the Lord of his faithful promises? Or are you just grumbling about all your problems? See the difference? Father, you have said you will never leave me nor forsake me. That's reminding the Lord. 
Now, the context for that may happen to be a health test, a financial test, or some other thing going on. But you're not grumbling over something going on. You're reminding him of his promises. You are reminding the Lord and saying, Lord, (laughs) I'm not telling you what to do or how to do it or even when to do it, but I'm ready. (laughs) Okay? Whenever you're ready, not my will but thine be done. I would prefer if the uh, answer came today. But Father, if that diminishes the glory of Jesus Christ, then delay the answer. If if, If a further delay teaches me more things about faith, then I'd rather have the further delay right now. I'd rather learn the the lesson this time around than fail the test and have to go through it again. And maybe this is a 12-year test as the woman with the hemorrhage. Or maybe this is a 90-year test as Sarah having a baby. Or whatever the length of the test is, I'm not going to stop praying until the answer comes. In this context, it's uh, until he makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. That's not our application. But we do have our own application. We're not going to stop until he makes the provision that he promised to make. So you who remind the Lord, take no rest for yourselves. There's a lot of things we're supposed to rest in. We should rest from our labors. We should rest. There's a lot of things. There's a whole Sabbath doctrine of rest, even for the church age, as we saw last hour. But there's no rest from corporate prayer. There's no rest from a redeemed body of people that are identifying with their eschatology and are fellow workers with the plan of God as he unfolds that plan on this earth. Take no rest for yourselves. And give him no rest. (laughs) Give him no rest. Right? You got that little baby in the house, that newborn? She's giving you no rest? All right? Besides all these hours that she's going to make all kinds of noise and Wake you up. I mean, she's up. You might as well be up too. That, if we are persistent in our prayers, we want to give him no rest. It tells us to do that. Take no rest for yourselves and give him no rest until he does what he has promised to do. And in some ways it seems, it's called importunate because it seems wrong. It seems um, arrogant on our part. It seems like we're stepping out of place or we're somehow, it's not wrong at all because he's invited us to have that attitude. He welcomes us to have that attitude. This is what displays his glory in the angelic conflict. This is what illustrates to the fallen angels where they went wrong as they pursued Satan in that rebellion. All right. Jesus taught this as well. Luke chapter 11, Luke chapter 18. I think those Matthew passages come right out of Isaiah as the Lord prophesied and spoke. I think these Luke passages come right out of Isaiah as the Lord uh, taught these principles. By the way, he taught these to Israel. I do find it interesting. The disciples asked him to teach us how to pray as John did. What was the ministry of John? The forerunner teaching tribulational saints how to endure and, and how to anticipate the coming kingdom. Likewise, Jesus, in this same context, Israel is the primary application of this context. You and I will draw a secondary application. But here's the important 
uh, prayer. He said to them, suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, friend, lend me three loaves. All right, well, you find out what kind of friend he is. (laughs) It doesn't take long. You know, you probably would have been better going at noon instead of midnight. Again, I guess it depends on what kind of friend he is. But you find out very quickly. Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. Again, you got the unprepared guy going to the prepared guy, saying, bail me out here, I'm, I'm a slug, and I wasn't prepared. And since you're prepared, clearly, um, I should benefit from your preparation, and then, of course, you won't have anything, but, you know, you can make more. I don't mind you doing more work to cover yourself after you cover my laziness. But from inside, he answers and says, do not bother me. The door has already been shut. My children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. Really, it's not, it's not a cannot, it's a will not. You know, he just doesn't want to do it. Physically, he can, but no. Come back tomorrow. <clears throat> what are you doing? It's the middle of the night. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, notice, yet because of his persistence. See, the guy won't take no for an answer. He's not going away. He keeps knocking on the door. Loaves, I need loaves. Knocking on the door, knocking on the door. Finally, I mean, the only way this guy's going to get any kind of sleep tonight is to do what? Yeah. He's got to drag his out of there, out of bed, and and get to the door, or get to the kitchen, get the bread, get to the door. And the sooner he does that, the sooner the pest goes away, and then he can go back to bed. Okay? I mean, this is, this is so obvious. And it seems um, as simple as anything. And this is what the Lord is doing. The Lord is telling this parable to make the point that he wants us to be like this in prayer to the Lord. So, verse 8, I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. He makes the application that says we should imitate that. We should be pests. We should be prayer pests. All right? He wants us to be prayer pests even though he is a friend, even though he wants to give us good things. Everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. What he doesn't want you to do is go to a different house or not bother him or say, well, I don't really want to bother him. I'll just try to figure this out myself. Well, you know. Yeah, I pray about the big important things, but the little things, I don't want to bother about this little stuff. Guess what? It's all little stuff. <laughs> okay? We, we turn stuff into big stuff and little stuff, but to him it's all little stuff. Bug him about everything. Don't try to, you know, handle things in the flesh if you think you can, and then, you know, go to prayer as a backup plan. Is, that, is prayer your, your plan B for stuff you tried to handle yourself, first of all, and that oh, didn't work, so let me pray about it. No, go to him every single time. Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Again, we're back to this earthly illustration. The neighbor's a jerk. God's not a jerk. 
The neighbor won't give him anything because he's a friend, but will finally give him something because he's nagging him so much. The neighbor, or you now personally, you aren't going to give your kid a snake when he's asking for a fish. Why do you think God's going to do that? If he's asked for an egg, you won't give him a scorpion, will he? Will you then, being evil, uh, you know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So there's a whole realm of doctrine here centered on prayer that's centered on the importunate prayer where we pester, 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 pester. And we know that he's going to provide. Similar message in chapter 18. Different parable, different uh, context, but nevertheless, the... The pattern is there right out of Isaiah. Take no rest for yourselves and give him no rest. In this case, it's not a neighbor, it's a lady with a judge. Okay? Amazing how you can shift the illustration around, you can tell it, you can tell a different story, but you're making the same point. Why does God do that? Well, some of us do better with a neighbor story, and some of us do better with a judge story, and in some ways it just clicks in different ways. God is so faithful to teach the same doctrine. For me, it's the get your armor and get up on the wall. That speaks to me. Just used to do that kind of stuff for a living. All right. Luke 18. He was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. That's probably the number one reason why people stop. They take rest. They've lost heart. Saying in a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God, did not respect man. There was a widow in that city. She kept coming to him saying, give me legal protection from my opponent. And for a while he was unwilling. And, and we don't know why. Maybe he, had, he was taking cash from the other guy or maybe he was on the take or maybe he was just friends or whatever. Maybe he wasn't particularly friends with the other guy, but there's nothing she can offer to him. What's he get out of it? Maybe he can turn it into some kind of profit if he lets this other guy know that... Uh, She's seeking this kind of justice. And for a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, even though I do not fear God and respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. He's finally just sick of seeing her in, in his courtroom. He's just sick to death that this bailiff keeps introducing this lady. All right, get her out of here. I'm done. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, here's your application. Speaking to Israel, of course, this isn't a church passage either. They need to have this importunate prayer during the tribulation. It's what sustains them during the tribulation. Will not God bring about justice for his elect Israel, the elect and chosen nation of God in the great tribulation, who cry to him day and night, and will he delay long over them not only is the schedule on, on track, but he's going to come back early. God's going to cut short that wrath and he will come as a thief at second advent. I tell you that he will bring about justice for them. That's the recompense of the second advent. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? He's not going to come until Israel in faith calls upon the Messiah whom they crucified. Oh, there's so much there. All right. So watchmen on the walls. I like this in Isaiah. Watchmen on the walls. Give him no, take no rest for yourselves. Give him no rest and give, and until he establishes and makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. 
And why can you have such confidence in your prayers? Not because you've earned it and deserved it. Because He has promised it. Verse 8, The Lord has sworn by His right hand and by His strong arm. You know, if He puts His arm on the line, what do you think He's going to do? He's going to lie about it and chop His arm off? What's He going to do? He has sworn by His right hand and by His strong arm, I will never again give give your grain as food for your enemies. The time of the Jewish plunder is over. They are going to become the plunderers. Nor will foreigners drink your new wine for which you have labored. Never again will the Jewish people be victimized by the Gentiles. Those who garner it will eat it and praise the Lord. Those who gather it will drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Think of the new wine and the celebration and the glory and on the millennial earth with no drunkenness. The perfect wine from the, and the perfect environment. What a delight. God has promised. We hold Him to His promises. So, are we busy? Are we active? Are we just sitting around waiting for God to do what He said He was going to do? First thing is, we get active, we get active in prayer. But then secondly, while we are active in prayer, what else do we do? What else do we do? We get active in our service. Verses 10 through 12. He says, go through, go through the gates. Wait a minute. I thought I was up on the wall. Okay. I understand there's metaphors here, but understand we have a prayer life. We also have a service. We don't neglect the one to do the other. Go through, go through the gates, clear the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, remove the stones, lift up a standard over the peoples. You know, if there's stones on the roadway, that's not going to do too well for those folks when the seed gets planted there. You expect them to remove the stones? Why don't you remove the stones on their behalf? It's part of your outreach. It's a part of your sacrificial love. It's part of your service. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, Lo, your salvation comes. It's on the way. It's coming. It's coming. Do you think it's not coming because he's taken 2,000 years to get here? Are you like those mockers that say, Oh, it's never coming? Lo, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him, his recompense before him. What comes first, the recompense or the reward? The reward is with him, but recompense goes before him. Judgment must precede the reward. And they will call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you will be called sought out, a city not forsaken. And so there's work to be done. There's preparation to be done. All right? If company's coming over, do you get real kind of goofy and buggy and have to clean the house up real quick? What do you do with the kingdom when the king's coming back? And the whole people are sinners and vile and pursuing their own selfishness. Why do you think John the Baptist arose and said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand? There's a whole point to be made here. In the third aspect of this chapter, Prayer is not a substitute for diligent service. It's not an either or, it's a both and. You want to be prayerful, but you also want to be diligent in the service that you are engaged in as God's fellow worker. 
Don't just be prayerful. I love true evangelism. We, we become prayerful in our prayers, in our evangelism. But when the person standing in front of you and says, what must I do to be saved? <laughs> you don't ignore them or run away from them and say, uh, uh, wait right there, I'm going to go pray about this. Should have already been in prayer to bring you to that point. And you follow up with the service. You follow up with the preparation. There, are tangible, there is tangible work to be done in uh, the coming kingdom. Okay? And by the way, the tangible work Israel has to do in the tribulation prior to bringing in the kingdom is a whole lot different than what you and I do in the church age as the preparational work to bring in the kingdom. If you don't understand that, I recommend 7.30 tonight. <laughs> kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of God. What is the kingdom? And all of the, the chapter reading in Norm Geisler tonight is on the kingdom. Go through, go through the gates. There's work to be done. Preparing the way was the primary mission of John the Baptist. And it will be the future mission of Elijah in the, in the tribulation. This is what was prophesied in Isaiah 40 and Isaiah uh, uh, Malachi. Malachi chapter 3 and Malachi chapter 4. Jesus testifies to this also in Matthew 17. So much of everything Jesus said came out of Isaiah. That one sermon we saw him preach in Luke chapter 4 came out of Isaiah. Preparing the way. Isaiah 40, and you should remember this. This was just, what, 22 weeks ago? Wasn't that long ago. Come on. Isaiah chapter 40. A voice is calling. This is verse 3. Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Clear the way. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. Let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. All right. This, is, uh, this has to precede the uh, <coughs> coming of Christ at his second advent. Again, we got Malachi, Malachi chapter 3, Malachi chapter 4. There's other Old Testament passages that speak of this. <coughs> Jesus employed this in Matthew chapter 17. Understand, though, Israel's assignment is different from ours. We're not going to see our countrymen signing the deal with Antichrist, but Israel will. Believing Israel will see faithless Israel signing that bargain with the devil. They're going to see armies gathered against them. They're going to see the signs and wonders of the tribulation. We're not going to see any of those. Our assignment is different in how we make our preparations. All right. Matthew 17 is the great transfiguration. And uh, Peter's got all these ideas. Hey, this is great. I'm glad we're here. Here's an idea. I'm going to make three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And God the Father says, Peter, will you shut up? <laughs> All right? Isaiah said, I cannot be silent. And Peter said, I cannot shut up. 
The voice out of heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Will you close your mouth and listen to what He's telling you here? The disciples heard this. They fell down to the ground and were terrified. So He gets them up. The others are gone. As they were coming down from the mountain, verse 9, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. There's a change of, of function that's happening here. He's no longer preparing Israel for the coming kingdom. He's preparing His disciples for the coming cross. They have a new message to deliver after He's risen, after He's ascended. The kingdom of heaven is no longer at hand. The kingdom of heaven has now entered its mystery form. It has become heavenly. It has become invisible. It has become a wheat and tares um, contrast. His disciples asked Him, well, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Why are the scribes quoting Isaiah and Malachi? He answered and said, Elijah is coming. He will restore all things in the tribulation prior to the second advent. But I say to you that Elijah already came and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the son of man is going to suffer at their hands. They rejected the forerunner. They chopped off his head. John the Baptist was executed. Rejected, first of all, by the Jewish people and then executed by Herod so also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Now, second advent, it will be Elijah or another contemporary prophet in the spirit and power of Elijah. And he will not be rejected. He will be heeded. Those that are repentant towards their kingdom will listen to Elijah in the tribulation and Christ will reign. So verse 13, the disciples understood. He'd spoken to them about John the Baptist. So preparing the way, preparing the way. That's not just praying about it. That's praying about it and actively serving the work of God the Father on behalf of what He's doing. Kingdom preaching. Kingdom preaching. I'm going to say more on this tonight because we we do preach the kingdom in the church age, but we don't preach it as being at hand. We preach it as being not of this world. And we don't take up arms to deliver things. Jesus said, my, my servants could have taken up arms and delivered me. But my kingdom is not of this world. My servants are watching as I go to the cross. We want to be very clear on what we do in preparing this world for this coming kingdom. It's different in the church age than it is for Israel. But kingdom preaching proclaims good news and bad news with a repentance mandate. You and I preach good news, <laughs> the gospel of Jesus Christ for eternal life. All right? We're not proclaiming repent. We're not proclaiming the change of deeds prior to getting saved. But Israel is commanded to repent prior to their king returning. It's a big difference. I'm running out of time, but in Isaiah 40, let me just grab these. In Isaiah 40, Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. The imminent arrival of Jesus Christ to deliver them. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with His arm ruling for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him and recompense before Him. Does that sound familiar? Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. 
That's not our gospel message. That's Israel's gospel message as they're surviving the tribulation, as they're promised the coming of the Lord in his might and in his shepherding care. Malachi 4, the last book of the Old Testament, the closing testimony to the Hebrew canon before 400 years of silence ensues. There is no prophetic utterance after Malachi. And for 400 years, the Hebrews are studying their scriptures and anticipating the coming of their Christ, anticipating the arrival of Elijah, first of all. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children. Oh, look at that. It's a repentance message. It is a spiritual message and it starts in the homes. It starts with the families and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Last word of the Old Testament is curse. Isn't that something? And so what happens in Matthew chapter 3? John the Baptist arises preaching in the wilderness. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And I'm out of time. you got verses 1 through 12 there of Matthew chapter 3. And we've got the fulfillment of this. 400 years of silence and here's John the Baptist. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Christ is arriving. The Christ is arriving. Well, I think for our application, we're not bringing in the kingdom, but we are ambassadors of this kingdom. We are preaching Christ to this lost and dying world so that they can be delivered out of the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of His Son, which is still presently on this earth, invisible. Invisible. Remember, it's thy will be done, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. You and I are citizens of heaven. We are a part of the kingdom because we're married to the king. All right, that's a whole different aspect than what Israel will fulfill in the tribulation. Father, I thank you for this class. I thank you for the study in Isaiah. And there is so much, Father. I know it seems that we're drinking from a fire hose sometimes. There's just so much that's coming out. And yet, there's so many things we want to glean and a little bit here and a little bit there. Father, I thank you for opening our eyes to the big picture for letting us see your overall plan and program, that Israel has a future. We're not taking their place. We're not replacing them. The Jewish people will have the the land of promise. And they're not going to get it from Antichrist. He'll promise it to them, but they're going to get it from your Son, our Savior, when He comes back, when we come with Him. And I thank you for these perspectives. I thank you for being able to rightly divide the word of truth, to distinguish between His first advent and His second advent, when he came to suffer, when, he came to, when he's coming to reign, to distinguish between law and grace, to distinguish between Israel and the church. Open our eyes, Father, to see the right distinctions so we make the right, rightly dividing, we can make the right application. Father, I do uh, just thank you for the principles of being on the wall and being in prayer and being in our armor and giving you no rest. I ask that we might uh, replicate that in our corporate prayers in all that we do as as the function of Austin Bible Church. I do thank you, Father, for uh, your grace eternal plan. And I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.